this worship period, and I appreciate John leading us in, in so many songs that had to do with our, our com- common love for one another and our fellowship with one another, since that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes. Uh, not to steal a page from John, but my voice has been less than 100% for the last three weeks. I'm going to ask you guys, if you'll turn this up just a little bit, and maybe I won't have to work quite so hard. There we go. That helps. Thanks. What would be funny was if he said, I didn't turn it up. <clears throat> If I were to have polled the congregation and ask you in light of this series that we've been looking at on Sunday nights uh, about choices, that what are, and I'm talking specifically about within uh, the spiritual dimension, what are the kinds of choices that, that you feel like that you have to make every day of your life because you are a New Testament Christian? And, and I can imagine what some of those things would be. There would be things on on the negative list, things that we need to not be doing in light of what Scripture says about the thou shalt nots. And there are obviously a lot of things that we, we are doing. We consciously, intentionally do every day because we're children of God that otherwise we would have very little interest in. I'm not real sure how many of us would put uh, choose the right fellowship on our list. Common sense, however, dictates that it does make a difference with whom we associate. I mean, even if it didn't say anything in Scripture, if 1 Corinthians 15, 33 were not there, where Paul said, evil companions corrupt good morals, I think just good common sense, spiritually speaking, would dictate that we understand and appreciate the fact that who we associate with makes a tremendous difference in our own mental attitudes and oftentimes even in our behavior, and maybe the, the choice of language that we use. That is, it influences almost everything else that we would put on that list of choices that I make, who I hang around with. I can't tell you how many times I have had the sad uh, opportunity to talk to people who, when they were explaining why they got derailed spiritually in their lives, why they perhaps had been away from God for a long period of time, say, I, you know, I began to associate with the wrong people. I got caught up in the wrong crowd. That's not at all unusual for preachers to hear and for elders to hear as, as they shepherd the flock of God. I want to I want to think more positively about that, though, because I, I also cannot even began to enumerate how many people that I have had the happy privilege to talk to over the course of my ministry who said, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I would not have made it spiritually had it not been for the support and the encouragement of my fellow Christians. So it does make a difference on the positive side of the ledger who we associate with. That is, we're here tonight as a congregation of people. We have decided, we deliberately and intentionally, you know, did whatever was necessary to wind up in this building so that we could rub rub elbows with people of like precious faith and we could sing these songs, we could talk about God's word, we could pray these prayers, and all of those things that we all, I think, at least intuitively understand are intended or designed to make us better people and to bring us closer to God and certainly closer to one another. But it is no real deep spiritual secret that when we get closer to one another, we get closer to God. And then again, when we grow in our spiritual lives and we get closer to God on an individual basis, that also draws us closer to one another as brothers and sisters in the the family of God. And, and, And that's the way God designed it. That is, it isn't accidental, it isn't coincidental. 
Flavel Yakely Jr. in his tremendously helpful book, at least in, in my own work, entitled Why Churches Grow, did some empirical studies that indicate that that is exactly the case. And I'm not just talking about for those of us who are veterans in the Lord's Army. I'm talking about for people who have just, like Alex who just, who just became a New Testament Christian. So for people who become New Testament Christians, and especially for people who had no real association with the church prior to that time, does our associating with one another and even our common worship times, does that help us to grow spiritually? And of course his answer was yes. Let me give you one quick excerpt from one chapter that's dedicated to the power of association. Brother Yakeley says this, these data, as he had just recounted uh, the findings of his surveys, these data suggest that when subjects formed personal relationships with members of the congregation, they were likely to remain faithful. And when they did not form such personal relationships, they were likely to drop out of the church. You know, and, and, and the more analytical side of us would probably hear something like that and say, well, you know what, my, my, my relationship to God should be right whether or not I ever develop relationships with one another. And I guess in a technical sense, that might be right. But in reality, where the rubber hits the road, we know that's wrong. Because if we make it, it's going to be because we have brothers and sisters in the family of Christ who are in our corner, who are on our side, who do support and encourage us in a very tangible and powerful way every day of the week. And so we need one another. I, I guess if I were to boil everything that I want to say down into one central uh, sentence to statement tonight, that would be that. We, we need one another. A common love is not just a theme that we come together and sing about. Choosing the right fellowship includes a number of decisions that affect our walk. That is, I mean, when we began making decisions, conscious decisions, spiritual decisions about who we're going to associate with every day, we can break that down into subtopics. For example, we, we have to make a choice about the friends that we have at school. And I can remember, even though it was when the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth, when I was in, in my early years of school, it did make a difference in regards to my attitude and my behavior, who I hung around with, the choice of friends that I made at school. And that didn't change when I got to college. I mean, we all understand that. We Also, forming relationships within the church, as, as Yakely's research has indicated, is incredibly powerful. The choice of, of the friends that we make even in our neighborhoods. Think about our work associates, our business associates, those people that we rub elbows with every day when we go to the office or we go to the factory or whatever. And probably, if, well, except for the probably part, uh, without a doubt, the single most important earthly relationship is our choice of a marriage partner. And I've often said when we talk about marriage from this pulpit or when I'm teaching a class on that subject, that of all the earthly relationships that you could ever consider, the one that we ought to ask ourselves the primary and preliminary question about is, am I marrying someone who will help me go to heaven? And if I'm not, if I'm not I need to rethink that. And I also need to be asking myself constantly, before and after the marriage ceremony, am I a kind, the kind of person that will help the person that I married go to heaven? See, it's a two-way street. So I want to marry someone who will help me and not hinder me in my Christian walk. 
But I also want to be the kind of husband that will help some, my, my, my sweet wife to go to heaven. That's, that's my ambition. And, and as children come along, we, we again are asking ourselves, what can I do every day on a daily basis that will help them go to heaven? So I want to talk for just a moment, if I may, about why Christian fellowship is so desperately needed. Why it's such a central a theme throughout Scripture. Because Christian fellowship is vital to our ability to grow good spiritual fruit. Listen to what Peter had to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Peter begins by defining who our enemy is. You know you're going to be very familiar with verse 8 when I read it to you. But, but then he adds some other ancillary information in there about that enemy and about how we can defeat him that is, I think, very sobering and, and, and very practical. Be sober, be vigilant. Uh, one version says self-controlled and alert. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whenever I preach on that, I always try to point out that it is Satan's desire and ambition not to hurt us it is to destroy us. Don't ever forget that. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. I don't have to tell you, when you've been eaten by a lion, game over. Close the curtains. He wants to destroy us. That's how formidable that adversary is. But then listen to what he also has to say about what we can do when that happens. When, you, when, when, he, when we encounter him, resist him steadfast in your faith. This, I think, is especially uh, pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by our brotherhood in the world. In other words, Peter says one of the things that you may find helpful in withstanding the work of, of Satan and those who work for him is to realize that you are not the Lone Ranger. You are not in this by yourself. Notice especially again, if you will, the latter part of verse 9, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It is just good to know, Peter says, to know that there are others who are fighting the same battle. You know, alcoholics have discovered the wisdom of looking for support from others who are fighting the same battle as they are. And the accountability factor, I think, is just one of the many reasons why Alcoholics Anonymous is as successful a program as it is. It just helps to be with others and to talk to people and relate with them who are fighting the same battle. Support groups then have sprung up all over the land. I mean, about just about anything. We have grief support groups, divorce support groups, and all kinds of support groups that are there that are very helpful because people have finally realized the truth of what the Bible has said for years, and that is there is strength in numbers. Choose the right fellowship. Make sure that our association with God's people is of paramount importance in our lives. We need each other in the church for the very same reasons that we've just been talking about. Other Christians understand the battle that we're fighting. May I contrast that for just a moment? Imagine, if you will, talking to some old boy down at work who is not a Christian, who has no real spiritual interest or spiritual concerns, talking to him about some of the spiritual battles that you're fighting and see what kind of response you get. He's not going to be at all sympathetic, certainly not empathetic, probably not at all helpful. He probably doesn't even wonder why you're fighting. He probably does wonder why you're even fighting that battle. And so it's God's people that we can expect to get that, that spiritual support from. 
Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. Paul just wants us to know that other Christians are having to deal with the same temptations and the discouragements that Satan is using against us. And that ought to tell us something. And that is the support of one another is important. That important. That, that we, can, we can relate to one another. I know what you're going through, at least to some degree, and you know what I'm going through. So we can share with each other the strategies that have been successful in our battles against Satan as we encounter him in the world. We can, we can receive instruction and encouragement from our brothers and sisters who have been through it and who have come out on top. Or, or even if you want to look at the other side of the coin, we can also get, we can learn something from those who have failed. I know that I've had that conversation with a number of people over the course of my life. That is, I'm never going to let that happen to me. And if you make that a commitment in your life, whether you're talking about some moral failure or whatever it might be, if you see someone else fail, if you see them stumble, and you make the determination, I'm going to learn from their sad experience, and I'm going to make sure that I never make that mistake, that that also can be very helpful. Solomon understood the power of association. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, in verses 9 and 10, and then I'm going to skip verse 11 for, for some reasons that if you look at the passage, you'll understand I'm, and, and, and end with verse 12. Here's what Solomon said, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Now, if, by the way, let me say, if you didn't know that was in the Bible, you probably already have figured that out on your own. Two is just better than one. So even when you're riding motorcycles, it's always best to ride with someone because guess what? If you wind up sideways in a ditch, you want somebody to help you out, right, Sam? So, uh, uh, so in, in every situation of life, two are better than one. One can help you up if one falls down. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Well, that's obvious. If somebody's about to mug you and I've got, uh, I've got Todd Oliver with me, I, you know, I'm in a good place right here. So, verse 12 then says, as it encapsulates everything that Solomon has just said, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. So, when, when the cord is comprised of three composite things that all together make something much, much stronger than just one alone does, that works in human relationships. So, spiritual fruitfulness is largely dependent upon, upon us making sure that we are in the proper spiritual environment. Let me say a word about that. We understand that in the world of agriculture. We know that a plant has to have proper sunlight, soil, temperature, and water if that plant ever is going to produce fruit. But in the wrong environment, a plant will wither away long before it ever reaches the point of being able to bring forth any kind of tangible fruit. We can't grow bananas in Ohio. We cannot grow maple trees in Southern California because the environment's wrong. And I believe that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 7, 2, chapter 7, verse 1, rather. Here's what he said. This may sound, when I first read it, it may sound uh, a little disassociated from our discussion, but think about it. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is, bring your, your spiritual holiness to a mature level, to a complete level, is what Paul is saying. So, so why does that have anything to do with what we're talking about? Paul is saying, if you're going to expect to grow spiritually, you've got to make sure that your soul stays in the right environment. 
And that's not a worldly environment. If you don't want to slip, you stay out of slippery places. That is a, an environment in which you are consciously every day deciding that I want to be God's man, I want to be God's woman. Now get this straight. There is no doubt that the Christian must live in the world. If you leave tonight with any impression other than the fact that we need to create the right spiritual environment, then I've said it wrong. But also need to impress upon us the, the fact that the reality is that we live in this world. So you can't always control the environment that you're in. We all know that. You don't have to be very old. You don't have to be a part of the kingdom for very long, a Christian for very long, to understand that principle. In fact, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew five thirteen beginning said to his disciples then and now, you are both, I, I'm, I'm boiling all of this down, of course, you are both the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But the reality is we can be neither of those things if we do not come in contact with whatever it is that God wants us to preserve. That is, salt does not preserve anything that it does not come in contact with. Even those in the audience tonight who are old enough to know how that you used to salt cure meats and put them in the smokehouse, you know, you understand that. And so salt has to come in contact with, whatever, with the world, and, and light has to illuminate, and we have to be in contact with the world in order to be the lights of the world. Christians cannot, nor should they want, to isolate themselves from non-Christians. So that's not what I'm saying when I'm saying we need to control our spiritual environment. A controlled environment, however, is important to our ability to produce the right kind of spiritual fruit. So we can't, uh, we can't withdraw ourselves from the world. The, the, the Jews decided that they would become isolationists, that the best way to be able to win the war against Satan, the best way to keep oneself pure in God's sight, they decided, was to buy, by building uh, a fort, you know, at least figuratively, and, and, and putting a moat around it and a drawbridge, and all the Christians, let's get in, it's, it's the fort mentality, let's get in the fort, we will pull up the drawbridge, all the bad people will stay out there away from us, and we will remain untainted that way. Problem is, it didn't work. It's not God's plan. God never asked us to leave this planet. He recognized and wants us to recognize the fact that we're going to always be in association with people in the world. But that's a part of his plan. The only way we can win the world for Christ is if we are in association, the right kind of association with the world. And yet when Paul was writing to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 22, he said, Be not a partaker of other men's evil deeds. That is, while you are winning the world for Christ, first of all, make sure that you've got your evangelism glasses on, and that's your intention. I want to I bring as many people to heaven with me as I can through the power of Christ. But while you're doing that, make sure that when you're associating with the people that you're trying to save, that you're not participating in the same things that they're participating in out in the world. Otherwise, guess what? Satan wins, you lose. Again, we all know that, I think, at an intuitive level. But, but we're talking about a controlled environment here. And, and Christian fellowship is the sunlight that causes the Christian to bloom. I, I just believe that with all the power of my being. And that's one of the reasons why we're here tonight. The warmth of that fellowship is always the perfect temperature for developing healthy, fruit-producing Christians. And it's only that type of fellowship that allows us to focus on proper role models. And I hope you have some. 
I hope there are people right here in this congregation, I know I have some, that you look at and, and you think, maybe you never said it out loud, but, but you think if, if, if I could be the kind of Christian that I really wanted to be in my dreams, I would want to be like him or her. It, it, it's a good thing to have role models. I think Paul acknowledged that at least implicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 1, and I will allow you to read that on your own time. But most of us do a better job of assembling something if we watch somebody else demonstrate how that's done. Even if we have, maybe I should say, especially if we have problems with printed instructions. If I'm able to watch somebody put something together or build something, then that's a whole lot better than me trying to go from the printed page, you know, in my short-sighted way, and, and, uh, and being able to do all the proper wrenching and put something together. Uh, Emerson is the one who said, I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I'd rather someone led me than merely showed the way. I think that we could all amen those sentiments because that's we, what we feel about the saving news of Christ. I want to be able to see somebody live that out on a day-to-day basis. I want to see how you do it. I want to see how you're such a good father, you're such a good mother. I want to see how you interact with people in your office place or on the factory line. The, the Bible includes instructions for, for living and serving, but it still helps us to be able to, to look around in our church family and see the Christian life demonstrated for us and before us. We need that kind of fellowship that puts us in a position to see close up the ins and outs of what it means to live a fruit-bearing life. It gives us also a first-hand opportunity to see how other, perhaps more mature Christians can handle the difficult situations. You know, when things are going well, I've said this dozens of times, but we all know this, when things are going well, it's not at all tough for the most of us to live the Christian life. It's in the heat of battle. It's when things aren't going my way. It's when something unexpected, some life has thrown you a curveball. That's when others can see the real power of Christian living demonstrated before them. And, and, and we're, we're talking third person here, but they're also, guess what, looking at you for that kind of example. Paul wrote to Titus about that very thing. He offered this challenge. This is Titus 2, verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. Exhort the young man to be sober-minded in all things showing yourself. Do you know who the yourself is in that text? It's Titus. Paul says to Titus, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. I think that's the very thing we're talking about. It's one thing to exhort the young men to be spiritually sober-minded. But now Paul says, not, don't just lecture to them. Don't just tell them, here's the way you need to act, young men. Now you show them, you demonstrate before them a pattern of good works. One version of that says, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them as an example of, by doing what is good. Titus was to be a model, a pattern for those with whom he came in contact. Here, here's a quick word of caution. We're almost through. We can be tempted to put our role models up on a pedestal. And let me say as clearly as I know how, that is always a mistake. Do not have role models, number one. But secondly, do not put them up on a pedestal. Because if you do, then you are doomed to disappointment at somewhere along the line. And also, they cannot and should not have to handle 
that kind of responsibility to be perfect. I'm just saying we can learn more from, from looking at mature Christians when we allow them to be human and when we realize that they make mistakes as well. I, I think that's the healthy perspective that we need to have on that. Now let me mention just very quickly three essentials for building this kind of Christian fellowship then we're through because logic dictates several considerations for, for building the kind of relationships that will bless us, that will equip us, and that will motivate us to keep on living the Christian life. First, it is, may sound a little strange, but a good self-image. I mean, we've got to have the right attitude and, and perspective on ourselves. That's important in building a relationship that will enhance our spiritual productivity. We may decide that I don't want to get close to people, and especially people at the church who have some spiritual values about them, because if they really got to know me, they wouldn't like me. And you, and you may be thinking, that's not a factor in my life. It is, it's the fa- a factor in the life of a lot of people. Because I've talked to a bunch of folks that, who feel exactly that way. I don't want to get close to anybody in the church because if they really got to know who I am on the inside, they wouldn't like me. It wouldn't have anything to do with me. So a poor self-image can keep us from having that kind of spiritual, satisfying relationship. Secondly, trust is another important consideration in building these relationships. At the request of her husband... There was a lady, a young woman in the church who came and to the elder's office asking for their counsel. And her husband had explained to them already, she refuses to let her guard down and get close to anyone. And he said, that includes me. So I don't have to tell you, we're struggling in our marriage right now. And he further stated, the people in the church have invited us into their homes, but she just... She's just never interested. That's why we've got to add this to our list. The problem became obvious after the elders had talked for only a few minutes with with this very troubled lady. She had been deeply hurt in childhood. She had difficulty trusting anybody, of of getting close to anybody, even, even her husband. And later she suffered severe pain in a disappointing relationship with her first husband who had been unfaithful to her. So a track record of being hurt by people. Bottom line, she was she was afraid to trust again. And the result was not only a shaky marriage, but also spiritual stagnation in her life. She just wasn't growing. Because once again, let me remind you, we need one another. We need one another. If I realistically expect to grow spiritually, I can't do that without you. And you can't do that without all the other good brothers and sisters who are sitting around you. I think one of the real indicators of spiritual maturity is whenever we pray, one of the first things that we thank God for is his church. I mean, we we just, I think some days we don't know how good we have it. And because of what I do and and where I I go on occasion, I'm reminded of that. Folks, I have done funerals where I was the only one there. I mean, a person lived, you know, 70, 80 years of life and had no one to stand by their graveside and say, we're sorry that he or she is gone. That's so foreign to us, or at least it is to me, because, folks, I expect you guys to show up at my funeral. Because I believe with all my heart, the old adage, if you don't go to a fellow's funeral, don't expect him to come to yours. <laughs> anyway, 
We need one another. And, and we're that bastion of support and encouragement that God planned when he said, and I will build my church. Third, and, and, and lastly, functioning at a reasonable pace is also another important consideration in building these kinds of relationships. Here's what I mean by that. A friend of mine once asked a coworker, is, is, here's what seems to be a very simple question. Is your wife still working part-time? And rather than getting a, you know, the expected yes or no response, the guy looked a bit puzzled and then he said, you know, I don't know. We, we've been so busy for the last couple of months, we haven't really had a chance to talk. Can you imagine? The guy doesn't know the work status of his own wife. Because their, their lives are so hectic and, and so fast-paced that they just... They don't have any kind of real relationship with one another at all. They're not even talking. So, so, so many of us intend to get to know, and, and I mean really know that young couple down at church, have them over for dinner when there's time. And a few years later, that couple moves away and they accept a, another job in a different city and we, we come to the sobering realization, you know, we, we never got to know them and we never even had them over for a meal. Several steps have to be taken to ensure that, that those opportunities exist. One is that we can plug into a small group down at church. And I'm not talking about restructuring this church. But we're talking about, you know, we've got Bible classes. We've got ladies' groups. We've got men's groups. We've got uh, sports teams and all kinds of ways in which we can find inroads and build relationships in, in this good congregation. And, and we get to know others in the church a lot better and much more quickly in these settings than just by running into the assembly at the last moment and then running out at the last amen. I was talking about these things with just uh, with a friend of mine not too long ago, and uh, and this and we were talking about a mutual friend that both of us had known for well over fifty years, and uh, he said, "Why do you, why do you think that uh, that we're all so still so close fifty years? What's this? After we went to Bible camp together, you can develop friendships, folks, in a week of Bible camp." That would take years to foster in a church foyer. I mean, and, and many of you have had that, that example, and, and that's one of the great values of Christian education as well. What close relationships that you build with people that you just continue to build on year after year. We also need to be available to meet the needs of others. When a need is met in the life of someone, the recipient of that blessing will often become a friend to the person who has rendered the blessing and so lasting friendships can be made with folks just by sitting in an ICU waiting room and talking and praying and crying. Third, we need to reflect a warm personality. I'm just going to summarize all of that by, by quoting Proverbs 18.24 where Solomon said, If a man would have friends, he must show himself friendly. I need to make myself available so that others can build relationships with me and I can build mutual relationships with them and then the last part of course is that we also need to be responsive common sense tells us that there are advantages to accepting the invitations that come our way young lady once confessed to me it's my fault that no one ever asked me over anymore and she said i used to get plenty of invitations but i usually turned them down and guess what it wasn't long before people stopped asking well that's no huge surprise and then there was another lady in a distant congregation, less than 500 miles away, less than 500 years ago, who said to me as she was explaining to the elders that she was about to leave our congregation and go to another in the same city. She wasn't moving. She was just congregation hopping. And she gave as, as uh, her reason for doing so, I have never felt a part of your congregation. 
But the fact that she said your congregation is one indicator of why. But I decided to find out why. So I did a little bit of investigating, and, and, and it revealed that several people had tried to include her and her husband in fellowships and activities only to be soundly rejected. And when I then went back and told her what I had found and gave her that information, she responded, well, they always ask me for times it wasn't convenient, and besides that, nobody's invited me to anything recently. Well, no wonder, no surprise. I'm telling you that we need to do whatever to massage our schedules to make opportunities to get to one know one another in the body of Christ. Certainly, it's worth shuffling of, of the schedule to open that door of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that kind of fellowship, I guarantee you, will enable us to move on toward the goal of glorifying God with our lives and serving him as we serve others. Bottom line is that people need encouragement and support from others. William Glasser, renowned psychologist in his book, Reality Therapy, said every person who's ever walked the planet needs two basic things. To love and be loved, to feel worthwhile to oneself and to others. We got all of that in the church, if only we will take advantage of it. I'm asking you tonight, are you a part of his kingdom? The greatest thing that you could do in 2020, I mean to start this year off right, is to become a part of God's spiritual family, where you have brothers and sisters who will help you go through whatever it is you're going through, will help you to grow in Christ and who will be your friend. And not the least of which, another conversation for another day, but I was talking to someone recently about someone that we had lost by death from this congregation. And we were both saying almost simultaneously, I sure do miss him. And then we got to pondering. He's going to be one of the first people right inside the gate when we get there. I've been waiting for you to come. Won't that be wonderful to have that heavenly family reunion when all God's singers get home? Be one of them while we stand, while we sing.